of uh, 2020 being all that it is, God has definitely taken care of our needs as a church, and he has also provided so that we can actually expand our parking. And so on, on some Sundays when uh, sickness hasn't hit us as much, we actually have uh, very few parking spaces left. So we're actually, by God's grace and his provision, are uh, going to borrow an amount of money so that we can purchase this lot right across the street. And uh, that lot will make way for uh, parking. We can actually double our parking on that space, even if it doesn't look like it. We're going to remove some trees. We're going to grade it. We're going to make an entryway with a culvert pipe, and it's going to be one-way flow all the way to the other side to be able to come up the hill, enter the parking spaces. There will be about three or four rows of parking, and then you'll be able to pull out the other side on the, uh, when service is over. And then um, on top of that, we're going to replace the roof, and we're going to replace the gutters. And so our desire initially, and you think about this as you pray through things for your own family, you, you make plans, and the, the Lord directs you to the right plan. Um, Proverbs says that man makes plans and the Lord directs his steps. And so our initial desire was actually just to double the sanctuary um, and purchase land and get a new roof and replace our siding and do all the stuff at once. And the Lord said no. And he said no through a bank saying no. And so uh, with that being said, we could have easily said, okay, well, I guess we can't do anything. But the reality is we still need more parking. So we prayed through this, and as the Lord gave us a no, we asked the bank, would you be willing to give us money to uh, purchase the land for the parking and do a few things that definitely need done right now? And they said, oh, absolutely. And so uh, we're borrowing money in order to make a parking lot and to replace our roof and do some uh, cosmetic and practical changes around here. Uh, but the desire is, is that we would give space for the church to grow so that in due time we would actually take the other bite of the elephant, which would be doubling the sanctuary. So by God's grace, we're going to do that. Um, we don't know exactly when the closing date is, but once that happens, you'll see some changes around here. You'll see some trees going down. You'll see some gravel going in, and uh, we're very thankful for that. So thank you for being a part of this venture of faith that we're in, and thank you for praying for us. Um, we still need wisdom in how we use what God's given us, and we want to be the best stewards of his money that he provides and uh, we're very thankful to say he has blown our socks off. In all of the years that I would think that we would grow as a church, I would not have picked a uh, pandemic and an election year and all of the scare and the fear that's going on. But God has truly been faithful. And one of the ways that he is faithful is through you all. So uh, thank you. Thank you for being faithful in what God's called you to do as part of our church. And so... All that's just a praise report, and I know that I don't always share a lot of practical stuff, but I'm trying to get better about that. Communication's a big piece of being a part of a family. So um, that being said, let's turn to Genesis 12 this morning. And as we arrive there, I want to remind you that God has made some pretty amazing promises to a man by the name of Abram. And the promises that he has made to him are attached to obedience, but they're really promises that he's made him, explaining to him that he's going to do things for Abram that Abram can't do for himself. If you remember a chapter before that where the Tower of Babel is being built and essentially man is saying in the face of God, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, my will be done, not God's. 
And yet in Genesis chapter 12, through one man, God's going to show himself as powerful and glorious and able to provide and able to do things that Abram can't do. And if you remember, we were reading one of the promises that God made to Abram is that he was going to make him a father of nations, not just nation, but nations, uh, that through his descendants, the entire world would be blessed, which seems like no big deal unless you understand that in the genealogy, every family was able to seemingly have children except for Abram and his wife who were barren. That means to be desolate of children. All of his brothers and sisters were able to procreate, and yet the one thing Abram couldn't do on his own, God says, I'm going to do in you. So it's a pretty amazing promise. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And Abram jumped right on it, right? He, of course, if God tells you something, you're just going to do it right away because we're all good kids. Except Abram, who is a picture of faith, instead of obeying right away, he delayed. He stayed with his family. He went halfway instead of the whole way to uh, Canaan. And then after his father dies, whether it's spiritually or physically, I do not know. At that point, he finally decides, I'm going to obey. Which tells me that obedience is always an option. So when your conscience is telling you, God's revealed this thing to you, if you've delayed obedience, it's okay, obey now. It's never too late to obey the Lord until it's too late. And we don't know what day is too late, but the Lord responds to Abram's 15 years waiting to obey, and, God, and Abram obeys, and then God responds and says to Abram, when he arrives in the place where he told him to go, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. God tells Abram, I'm going to bless you, and you are going to be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And then Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people whom they had acquired in Haran. And they departed to go to the land of Canaan. This was where God told them to go. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem as far as the terebinth tree and Moray. Excuse me, of Moray. And the Canaanites were then in the land, and then the descendants, excuse me, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land. I love this because we see that God promised things to Abram, but notice that his promise directly for the land is wait. I'm going to give you this land, and really, your, in, your descendants will inherit it, not you. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and he moved from there to the mountain east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So Abram journeyed, going on still toward the south. And so as we arrive today in our text, this is what's taken place. 
and uh, for some reason my clicker is not working. So if you'll give me the next slide. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there. So oftentimes we think, God's told me to do thing. Now that I've done it, I'm good. Now I'm safe. Nothing can go wrong, right? But the problem is, is that though Abram has obeyed the promise, he still lives in a land that's not yet his, and he's still trying to follow a God that nobody else in the world follows. So through obedience, he's going to meet with adversity. There's going to be opposition to the will of God because the whole world is actually against the will of God, even to today. The whole world is set up as the world system. And God has sent his son and dealt with our sin, but he who is in the world is the devil, and the world is owned by him. If you remember the temptation in the wilderness, we have Satan tempting Jesus, and he says to him, if you will bow to me, Jesus, then I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And you'll notice that Jesus didn't argue with him and say, you can't do that. You don't know the kingdoms of the earth. And if you look at the book of Revelation, what it says there is that Jesus, because of his payment for sin and his kingship, his de he deserves to be king, he will actually be able to have the keys to open the scroll or the title deed to the earth at the end of times. That he's the only one that can buy back or redeem the earth from being a slave to sin and Satan. And so with all that being said, we're still in Satan's kingdom right now. This is not home yet. And so if you think about that, here's Abram obeying God, Yahweh, and he's told to go into this land. And now there was a famine in the land where God told him to go. And Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. So I have a picture here for you of Abram in the kingdom. This is not to scale. And he and his family are traveling down to Egypt. Now, Egypt in Scripture is a type of the world. Abram was told by God to go to this land, and here I would bless you. And yet there's a famine, there's a practical trial. And so Abram has a temptation to trust the Lord or a temptation to go back to the world to a place where he knows he can get sustenance. If you think about it, Abram is from Ur of the Chaldeans, which was a, a river city. It was on the Euphrates River there in Babel where the tower was built. So when God called him away from Ur of the Chaldeans, he was calling him away from a city of 300,000 people where there was a river that flowed through it, which means rivers equal life. And so if there's no water and you go to a land that depends upon rain only, then there's no abundance. There's no river. There's no Chick-fil-A. There's no Krispy Kreme. There's no Walmarts, whatever. There's no anything that he's used to having that would make him feel comfortable when things get tough. And so Abram is tempted to go down to Egypt and going to the world is always a trip down. He's heading into the gutter to try to get sustenance instead of saying up in the land where God showed him to go. So Abram is from Ur of the Chaldeans, a city with a river. Hard times will send you to some place that's familiar and comfortable to you. As believers, hard times will always send you back to the watering hole you're most comfortable with. 
for me, it, it was always going back to the world, whether it was for something to drink or something to watch, something to get my mind off of what was actually happening. For you, it might be something else. But as believers, hard times will always send you to something familiar that feels good. For Abram, that meant go to the city and find a river. And so it says here that um, it came to pass when he was close to entering Egypt, verse 11, that he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. So he's complimenting his wife. But why? <laughs> you know, not, not what he's saying, but why is he saying it? Well, verse 12 tells us, therefore, it will happen that when the Egyptians see you as we're going into the city, that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill you. They will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you're my sister, that it may be well with you, with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. So this isn't just Abram saying, hey, you're smoking hot, and I think other people are going to kill me for you, so, so let's cover this up and say you're my sister. Uh, she was actually really good looking. Now think about this. She's in her 60s or 70s at this point, so that's saying something. He shows up in Egypt, and Pharaoh's servants are going to go to the king and say, this girl is good looking. And if you look at historical writings, it actually says there that the Egyptian men actually preferred Hebrew women. So this is, it fits along with what we know about culture, sociologically. And so the princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male and female servants, female donkeys and camels. So think about this. Abram's afraid he's going to lose his life, and instead he loses his wife. Because this doesn't mean that, like, hey, she's good looking, we like her to hang out with us. This means she's good looking, we want to essentially give a dowry, that's all the stuff that Abram got, and we want to take his sister into Pharaoh's harem. This is PG-13. And so he has many wives, still wants another one. Imagine that. And so he takes Sarai into his harem, and he's going to take her to be his wife in a physical way. And so Abram has protected his own life, but he's not protected his wife. So not only has he left the land of promise and gone to the world for help, but now he's endangered his marriage. And this happens all the time. We go to the world for help, and then we endanger not only our marriage, but our children. And we're going to see that in the life of Lot here shortly. So while he's in the world, he's gained the world and given up his soul. He's given up his soulmate. And as he's given up his soulmate, now he's in dire straits. Verse 17, but the Lord, look at this, plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say that she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. Get out of town. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, 
and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So it was common in those days, by the way, for people to see someone else's wife, to kill them, their husband, and to take them as their wife. Think about one example of this, and our Old Testament is actually among the believers. King David took a man's wife while the man that served him as a commander in his armies was out at battle, and when he took his wife, no doubt, I don't think the plan was to take her as a wife, but to just take her as basically pleasure, and then out of that comes a pregnancy, and then he ends up killing Urijah, Bathsheba's husband, so that he can cover it up. Man is lustful and always coveting other people's stuff, and it causes us to murder. And so Pharaoh would have done this type of thing, perhaps. But technically, Abram didn't lie, because Sarai was actually his half-sister. Now, you might be going, oh, what in the world? Well, at this point, there's no command against that. But what I want to point out is that in Genesis chapter 20, verse 12, we actually get that in the narrative. Uh, because, by the way, he's going to do it again. He's going to do the same exact thing again because he's a slow learner like the rest of us. And I take encouragement in that because what the Bible in the New Testament tells us is that Abram, though he faltered, is someone we should look to as a person of faith. He's known for his faith. And his faith was accounted to him by God as righteousness. But if you look at the life of Abraham, you might not go, hey, that's a righteous man. You'll go, wow, he is a, he's a screw-up. Well, take heart. That means the rest of us will do pretty good too if we'll just trust the Lord and admit that we're screw-ups. But in 20 verse 12, it says this, Uh, when he does this again, verse 12, but indeed she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. So here we find out that technically she's half-sister. So, but what I want to point out is that, by the way, a half-truth is always a full lie. You could split it any way you want it, but if you're lying even in the smallest amount, you're You're lying. Lies always create problems. But I also want to point out that Sarah, or Sarai, is protected. While she's not protected by her husband, she is protected by who? By God. And what's interesting is when she submitted to her husband, even though he did a jacked-up, Jerry Springer-type move, uh, she humbled herself, submitted to her husband, and God protected her. You husbands, you need to protect your wives. But when you don't, God's going to protect your wife, uh, sometimes even against you. And here, God goes to the length to protect them by plaguing the Pharaoh and his household. And what I love about this is that Abram gets rebuked by an unbeliever. By the way, Pharaoh's not a godly man. He's a very ungodly man. But that's a low spot as a believer, by the way as a faith-filled person, when you get rebuked by unbelievers. But God will do it if he has to. And if you look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, you'll see that the New Testament actually holds up Sarai as a very godly example of what it means to be a woman. And think about it like this. Sarai wasn't a godly woman because she had a perfect husband. 
you know, anybody can be a godly wife if I've got a perfect husband. Well, guess what? She didn't. So you're back in the same seat as she is if, if you're in that spot. So all that said, I want you to notice also that while Abram had gone down to Egypt, while he is there, we don't see him building any altars. We don't see him praying or worshiping. We see a lack of worship. We see no peace. It's almost as if faith is not a piece of what he's doing. But notice here that God is still at work. God is still fulfilling his promises. But notice here also, even in his disobedience, Abram leaves with much. Abram left with much, even in his wandering to the world for help. But the fruit of trusting the world would also later, he also left with a servant girl that was Sarai's servant girl while she was in Egypt, uh, Hagar. And if you know anything about the narrative, we're going to read that, that eventually Hagar would become a temptation to live the ways of the world. And I won't give you a spoiler of that right now. But he did leave with something that was going to be a problem later. So verse 20, or excuse me, chapter 13, verse 1. Uh, let's finish out chapter 12, um, verse 19. Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Then Abram went up from Egypt. This is not just a geographical thing. He's going up from the gutter. He and his wife and all that he had and lot with him to the south. So it's not that they're saying geographically he's going north. He's going up to the south. Interesting. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So he's returning to the place that he started. If you ever find yourself in a place where you have gone to the world, do what God has told in the book of Revelation to the church at Ephesus. I'm going to go there real quick wasn't that long ago we were studying Revelation, so obviously it's still on my mind. But there's a passage there uh, to Ephesus. And God commends the Ephesian church for many things. But he said that he had one thing against them, according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, Ephesians, that you have left your first love, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. And maybe the word would be to, to, to Abram. Remember, therefore, from where you have left. The place of his first love for Abram was in the land of promise. Remember where you have fallen from. Repent and do the first works. He had left. He went to Egypt. Now I want you to turn. Repent means to turn around from what you just did. Agree with God that it was sin. Call it sin. Stop calling it mistakes or a, a boo-boo or whatever thing you want to politically correct make it sound. And call it sin. I missed the mark, God. I was tempted and I went to the world instead of to you. Turn around and do the first works. Well, what was he doing before he went down to Egypt, before he was tempted by the famine? He was worshiping in the land God gave him. 
do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So if you find yourself caught up in sin, stop making excuses and blaming everyone else, but call it sin, say, I'm sorry, God, confess it to him, and go back to where you were before. If you get to a place where you don't know where you're supposed to be, go back to where you know you were supposed to be and begin again. So in Revel- excuse me, back here in Genesis, he, he goes back to the land, he builds an altar, he gets back to worshiping the Lord. Verse 5, Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. This is a good problem, right? God has so richly blessed them in this land, even through a famine, mind you, that when they get to a certain point, there's not enough grazing land that they can remain together. And so their blessings create problems. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So there they are in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. So there's problems in Canaan too. They went to Egypt and there was problems there. Uh, Apparently having a really good looking wife can be a problem. It can be a stumbling block. But apparently also being blessed financially and practically with your herds growing can be a problem as well. How many times do we say, Lord, if I just had enough stuff, if I had a big enough house, I had a, a nice enough car, if my car wouldn't break down, or if, if, if my children would listen, if I had lots of kids to those that can't have kids, if I had a bigger refrigerator, wh- whatever it might be, it, there's always some, if my f- cell phone that's two years old would stop glitching, I could make phone calls, and then it, I would have an easy life. If my lawnmower would stop, what is your thing? If this, then Lord, I would serve you. If this, then I'd be unhindered from going whole hog. And yet what we find here in the life of Abram is it's actually his blessings that create more problems than they do solutions. And so the problem in Canaan is that Abram came back to Canaan. He worships the Lord and he has so much blessing from the Lord materially that it caused problems because Lot and Abram's herdsmen were fighting. What I want to point out is that in our blessings, in the times where we have been blessed by the Lord, it's very easy to forget that there are other people watching how we handle our blessings. No doubt, it's hard to handle trouble by faith, but blessings can be even harder because we can learn to trust in them, and then we can start squabbling and fighting over them, and in the meantime, the world is watching to see how we handle prosperity as well as trouble. The world's always watching. Notice it says there, for some reason, in the end of verse 7, the Canaanites and the Perizzites then 
dwelt in the land. They're watching how Abram and, and Lot deal with one another. But notice what Abram says to Lot. Please let there no, be no strife between you and me, between my herdsmen and yours, for we are brethren. Let's not look at what separates us, which is the blessings. and Let's look at what unites us. And I don't know about you, but as I've been pondering this passage this week, and I've been thinking about the, the distraughtness in the conservative community about what could be, the reality is I don't know what the election is going to create in our society. I know what the campaigning has created on both sides, and that's division and strife and war and, and name-calling and backbiting. And personally, I'm offended at the conservative side. What I'm offended at is that if we were trying to win over some that, that were coming, that we'd like to convert others to our conservative ways, the best way I can tell that we did that was by calling names and shouting just as much as the other side did. But as a nation, we are divided, and I think we could all agree on that, no matter what side you come from. We're divided. And Jesus' words to his disciples and to non-believers during his lifetime here are a nation or a kingdom divided against itself will not stand. It was the same truth that they needed to hear. We need to hear it. Now, the Bible also says in Matthew, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God, sons and daughters of God. Peacemakers can only sow peace by making peace. And we know the king of peace. So it is our job, our job to make peace, by the way, even with people you disagree with politically. So we need to get to work. We need to make peace. Look at what Abram said here. Maybe this is specifically for us. Abram says to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me. And between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're brethren. We are countrymen, fellow countrymen with the people that we just battled with in an election. And no matter how the polls come out, because by the way, they're still not finalized officially. The media has said it's final. It's not final yet. But no matter what side you're hoping in, no matter what happens afterwards, there's going to be two sides and they're both going to be still angry at each other because they just got done battling. We are not of this world. We are peacemakers because we are following the king of peace, if we are. So what can we do? We can take wisdom from Abram here and say to our brethren, we are brethren, please let there be no strife between you and me. Let's find what unites us. Let's find what we can find in common and work together because otherwise our country will implode. No one else will have to destroy it. We will. And so he says, if you take the left, then I will give to the right, go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes. So he gives preference to his nephew. Now, why was Lot even with Abram? Lot was with Abram because, remember, it says that his older brother died. Abram's older brother had died, which just so happened to be Lot's uh, dad. 
And so he's taken in this orphan, if you will, into his family. And so guess what happens with sons and essentially stepdads or foster dads? Uh, strife, by the way. They've probably been their whole life. And yet Abram is taking wisdom and saying, hey, we're brethren still. Let's work together. So he deals with Lot directly. He talks to him. He doesn't talk to everybody else about it. You got a problem with somebody, don't go talking to everybody else. Talk to that somebody. And he gives Lot the option to separate, and he also gives him first dibs on where to go. He doesn't say, hey, I get first choice because I'm Abram, God promised me. He actually says to Lot, um, why don't you pick where you want to go, and then we can, we can divide, we can separate peaceably. There's a lot of wisdom in that. And if you turn to Romans chapter 12, it's actually a Holy Spirit-filled character that gives him the ability to make this decision. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, uh, Paul writes to the Romans, he says, Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Look at that. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor. So honoring them, not necessarily because you honor their opinion, but because they're a fellow brother that's been made in the image of God. That's why they deserve preference. He says here, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. This is how we can serve the Lord in our context right now. And so as we go on in verse 10 in uh, Genesis 13, it says that Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So Lot has a decision to make, and then it affects his family, and it affects Abram. But I want, what I want you to notice is in verse 10 through 13, Lot chose for himself, and he's choosing with his own eyes. Notice how he chose. He lifted his eyes and he saw what he was looking for. He saw lots of water. He saw the garden of the Lord, this well-watered plain. He saw the land of something that was like the land of Egypt. And if you know anything about Egypt, it was called the Fertile Crescent for a reason. It had the Nile River and it had lots of fish. Uh, so Lot chose for himself to go towards this land. As Lot chose for himself, it caused him to depart from Abram. Abram remained in Canaan, and Lot will eventually pitch his tent toward a place called Sodom. It doesn't have a positive connotation. But he dwelt in the cities of the plain. And if you know anything about Lot's life, he starts by going toward Sodom. He pitches his tents, aiming there. And by the end of it, he ends up living in Sodom which is the epicenter that's going to be destroyed and becomes a type of sin in the world. And so there was also exceeding wickedness in the men there. It says in uh, verse, let's see here, verse 13. 
But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all the plain of the Jordan, and he journeyed east, and they separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. So what I want to point out about Lot's decision here is it actually makes a lot of sense. If you're a farmer and you want to increase your crops and you want to increase your, your herds, which is what farmers want to do, you want to succeed, you don't go away from the water, you go towards it, right? But what I want to point out is though it was a wonderful place for farming success, it was no place for children. It's a horrible place to raise a family. Sometimes the things that make the most logical sense are actually the worst decisions you can make for your family. We're going to find that. Lot's going to lose his family in Sodom. When Sodom gets destroyed, his wife will look back, even though the Lord told, him not to, told them not to, and she'll turn into a pillar of salt. His, his children will be so affected by living in Sodom, morally, that when they do escape, even though they escape, they think they're the last family on earth, and when the, the chips are down and they're in a cave and they're escaping Sodom and they see Sodom destroyed, it says that they, knowing, believing that they were the last people on earth, decided to get their dad drunk and have sex with him and create essentially two children that become the Ammonites, and the Moabites, which end up being a snare for the Israelites throughout their time in Israel. Not to mention the crazy sexual immorality that's just in that circumstance. So you may think that when you're making a decision very logically, no big deal, I don't even need to pray about it. But the reality is spiritual implications can be had on your family when you serve success instead of uh, Jesus. And so verse 14, as we close, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes now and look from the place where you are. Notice this, Lot lifted his own eyes. Who lifted Abram's eyes? The Lord. After Lot separated, God again speaks to Abram and says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. So the Lord chooses for Abram. Abr Lot chooses for himself. The Lord chooses for Abram. And if you think about this in the context of Psalm 23, when the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not be in want. He will make you to lie down in green pastures. He will lead you beside cool streams. He will make your cup overflow. But you've got to trust him to do so. The Lord said this after Lot had separated from him. And all the land you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. I'll make your descendants as many as the dust. Think about this. Lot looked and he saw a fertile plain. He saw a river. You don't have dust where there's rivers, by the way. You have fertile and moist soil, which is perfect for growing stuff and feeding things. <laughs> Abram gets to look all around from where he is, and the Lord gives him a picture of what he's going to do by telling him and pointing to, hey, look at the dust that, on the property I've given you. Look at all the dust. 
I'm going to make your descendants as many as the dust. And I love this. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust on this dusty plain of the earth. So that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. He says, arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. So the Lord again uh, blesses Abram, and Abram responds in worship. He moves his tent, he builds an altar, and he worships. Notice that Abram keeps getting separated from the people from his past life. And then in that person's absence, God reveals even more to him about his new life with God. So as we close this morning, I want to talk about a few things. Trials come through blessings. You want God to bless you? You're asking for trials whether you realize it or not. A beautiful wife could possibly lead to a risked life. Abundant herds will lead to strife and space problems with family. But both are opportunities to choose to live by faith instead of by sight. When your blessings create problems, where do you look for wisdom? Oftentimes I, I talk to people and they're, they're asking for prayer and then God answers their prayer and the thing that they prayed for ends up being the hardest thing they've ever had to deal with. But when your blessings, when God blesses you and it creates problems, where do you look for wisdom? Do you look up at what's in front of you or do you look up to the one who made what's in front of you? Because here's what happens. God gives us something. He creates a blessing. And then we start to worship and serve the thing he created instead of the creator. And so God's always using our blessings to point us back to him. But if we have a heart that only looks at the stuff, we're going to look to the stuff for answers and it becomes an idol. The other question I have is, do you give those who oppose you, those that you disagree with, those that you have beef with, do you give them space to make their own decisions or do you try to force them to follow what you believe is right? Abram gave space to Lot knowing that Lot was going to make a bad decision. Lot was like a son to him. Many times we have people that are younger than us or younger than us in the faith and we're afraid to let them go because we're afraid if we do, we're afraid if we do let them go, they're going to go make a mess of their life. And I will say this to you this morning, that if someone in your life is going to make a mess of their life, you're not going to stop it. What you need to do is bless them, give them space to make mistakes, and stay close to them because you're the only one that's going to stay close to them long enough to hopefully help them when they hit the gutter. They're still going to need you. Don't put them out of your life. Don't separate just because it's too hard. If a brother disagrees with you, do you disown them or do you give them space to make mistakes and then love them enough so that if they mess up, they can come back and receive grace again? Abram, in the next chapter, is going to do this for Lot. Lot's going to go towards the plain of the Jordan. He's going to get so embedded in the city that he's going to become a captive. And guess what? When Abram gets word, he takes his entire household he gets on their battle garb, 
and he goes and delivers them out of trouble. Boy, he loves Lot. Because you know what I'd say? You made your bed, lie in it. But here's the deal. Abram is a type of Jesus. Jesus doesn't do that to us. He's so patient. How many times has the Lord shown you something very clearly and then you delay obedience or you say, ah, I get it, but I'd rather have this thing. And then you eat that thing, you do that thing, you partake in that thing, and then it enslaves you, it puts you in shackles. And you cannot deliver yourself, and then you cry out, Lord, what am I going to do? And what does he do? He comes for you. We're the prodigal son. The prodigal son goes out, and he lives for the world. He spends his father's inheritance. And then he finally, when he gets to the lowest low point, he's sitting there, and he's looking at the food that he's feeding to pigs, and he goes, man, I'm hungry. I'd like to eat some of this. And then he thinks about his father's house and how well the servants in his father's house are treated. And he goes, you know what? If I'll just humble myself and go become a servant for my dad, become a slave for him, at least then I can eat what the slaves are eating. And then he goes back to the father's house, and the father doesn't say, hey, come on in and be my slave. What does he say? Enter into the joy of your father. He slays the fattened calf. He feeds him. He, he throws a big party because he's celebrating the son that had been lost. He thought he was dead, but now he's alive. And he welcomes him home. I love that. Our father is so gracious. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for your perfect love. Thank you for your wonderful patience. Thank you for the great things you do for us while we're still sinning against you. Thank you for revealing your perfect will to us and then giving us the space to make horrible decisions, even though it might mean destruction. And then when we cry out to you, if we cry out to you, being willing to listen, being willing to receive, and being willing to forgive us and even shed your own blood so that we can be cleansed and brought back into the Father's house. Lord, you're so good. We don't deserve it. And we're so grateful. Forgive us when we forget how much you've done to love us, though we rebel against you over and over again. Give us the ability to remember our first works and return. Help us to lo love you first and foremost in all of our ways. And in the doing that, Lord, help us to love our neighbor as though we were our neighbor and we would need that same love. Help us to love our neighbor like we love ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.